Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 152. Are women responsible for male lust? Hello and welcome. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and I am with my favorite licensed therapist, Argyle expert, and my husband, Matt Krieg. Hello. Hey, Matt. And of course, we do have the most professional radio voice among us, and he is among us. Producer Steve, back from COVID life. Hi, guys. So great to be back. How are you feeling post-COVID? Yeah, I'm feeling fine. Can you taste, smell everything again? Uh, No, not yet. Oh, really? Apart from that, I feel fine. Really? You can't taste or smell anything? Nope. That's annoying. I'm sorry for your pain, but it, I'm glad you're feeling better. It's it's annoying until one of my teenage sons does things that teenage <laughs> sons do. What, do. what do teenage sons do? They can they can they can they emit ramen? certain odors. So can one year old sons. Oh, yeah. and four year old and six year old daughters. <laughs> but anyway, guys, I am so excited to dive into the conversation today with fellow author and teacher in the sexuality conversation, Rachel Joy Welcher. Oh, guys. We're diving into a conversation that we need to pray over. I'm like, I might get triggered. Jesus, help me. Um, it, I don't think we're going to get triggered. Uh, just so you guys know, we don't necessarily need a warning as far as triggering with specific graphic things we're going to talk about. But this is a conversation that has hurt so many women, so many men. It's hurt me too. Specifically, we're talking about how women can feel such responsibility uh, for men's wrestling with lust and some of the uh, weight that has been put on us about that and some of it maybe that we've picked up. I don't know. We're going to dive into it with Rachel Joy Welcher. Rachel, welcome. Oh, it's so good to be here. We are so glad to have you here, guys. If you do not know Rachel, you should get to know Rachel. She has her master's in literature from the University of St. Andrews, is a columnist and editor at Fathom Magazine, and she's the author of two books of poetry and the book we're going to dive into today called Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality, and that's with InterVarsity Press. Woo, woo, we love them. Uh, Rachel, yeah. Rachel and her husband, Evan, live in Glenwood, Iowa. So excited to dive in. But first, you guys, you know the routine if you've been listening to this old Hole in My Heart podcast. We're going to tiptoe toward the deep end with a question of the week from last week, which is this. What's a snow memory you have? There's no memory like snow memory. Uh, What's a sweet, funny, or terrifying one? Matt Craig, we're going to start with you, friend. Which listener response on Facebook, which guys, just friend me. Just find me somewhere in the social media somewhere. And there's a good chance I will post it there often a little late. <laughs> Thank you guys for jumping in and helping us. Um, but Matt Krieg, which listener response stood out to you? Yeah, I really liked what Michelle had to say. She said, the first time I ever saw snow, I was 24 years old. I was visiting Western North Carolina for the weekend and had never seen snowfall from the sky. I know for sure that the Lord did that for me that weekend. It wasn't on the forecast for snowing anymore. But there was snow on the ground when they arrived and they could feel it in their soul that it was his gift to them. And so that was just really nice because I'm not someone who didn't see snow falling from the sky until I was 24. And so I don't have those happy like Hallmark movie feelings necessarily when I see snowfall because it just usually means me shoveling the driveway. Um, but one snow memory that I remember from childhood was we got an ice storm when I was in like second or third grade and got two weeks off of school and there was so much sledding (laughs) all the time until like my toes were basically frozen and blue and it was amazing. Oh, Matt, that's fun. So 
when you were growing up in Ohio, you guys had snow. That's nice. Uh, Steve Odell. Uh, yeah, I really like this comment. My name is Ty Hogue from Holland, Michigan. My snow memory is this. We would have to wear old bread bags over our socks inside of our boots when we would play out in the snow. It would keep your feet dry from the snow, but they'd get super wet because you were sweating like a beast. Uh, which, growing up in Pennsylvania, I can relate. Actually, um, when I was out there playing in the snow with the bread bags over my socks, uh, it was the year that The Empire Strikes Back came out. And so I pretended that I was in the Rebel Alliance on what? the snow base of Hoth. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you know, the Empire was... Yeah. Coming watch, after me. Watch out for the wampas. <laughs> exactly. Them too. Yes. So. I just like, fe- every time Star Wars words come in, it's like my brain just goes, just, <laughs> which is a Star Wars reference. Actually, yeah, that's the sound of the hyperdrive malfunctioning on the Millennium Falcon. My brain starts malfunctioning. <laughs> it falls right asleep. No, I love you guys. Okay. <laughs> I appreciated uh, this. Hi, my name is Heather and I'm from East Berlin, Pennsylvania. I grew up in this area and I remember several big snowstorms from when I was a kid. I grew up on a dairy farm that sat on top of a hill, which made for some really sweet sledding. But snow also made doing chores a lot less fun. Um, I remember one particular time when I was about 12 or 13, my dad made me climb up on the barn roof with him to help him shovel it off because the weight of the snow was making the rafters creak. I hate heights and it really freaked me out being up on a roof thinking that it could collapse under me any minute. It's just an intense story. So I was excited about that. Uh, And then I, one of my favorite snow memories is... Similar ice storm. We lived with a creek in our backyard, and my brother and I just followed the creek for a really long time. Now, Rachel, so rude. I usually start with the guest, but I'm saving the best for last. So I would love (laughs) to hear your best snow memory. Well, I grew up in California. Oh, snap. So I remember it was very rare for us to get snow. Um, We'd have to drive to the snow, like to Mount Shasta. but I remember one winter we got snow on the ground and it only lasted about a day, but we all went out there and built these really muddy snowmen. So all around the neighborhood, you could see we had to use rocks in the middle and just cover the rocks with snow so that they'd be full because there was hardly any, but um, it was just really cute because you'd look around and all the kids were trying to build these really pathetic snowmen because we actually got snow. <laughs> so that's my it. California memory. Now I'm in Iowa and I get plenty of snow each winter, more than I would like. <laughs> oh, does it bring back good memories or is it just kind of, here you, you are? You know, it's beautiful, but my husband has to shovel it. So, you know. <laughs> I hear you. Now, Rachel, let's start diving deeper with right. you. We ask this set of questions to every guest who we've had for the last 150 episodes, and it's this. It's, if the gospel is, I'm more loved than I imagine, yet more sinful than I believe, when was that gospel first good news for you, and how is it still today? Well, I love that question. Um, so I grew up as a pastor's kid, so I always knew the gospel but I remember at age 11 being at a youth camp and they were showing one of those Jesus films. And even though I had known all the facts of the gospel, it just really struck me in that moment that um, my sin caused his death. Mm. And just the, I think the weight of forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, 
it, it became real to me. And that's when I would say I, I probably truly became a Christian, even though I'd always believed it. Mm. And that image of Jesus on the cross continues to be important to me because it shows me that um, he is a suffering Christ and he understands our dark moments. He understands what it means to be human. And yes, the resurrected Christ is my hope, but the Christ on the cross is is so important to me in those moments when I um, am struggling and when there is, you know, that dark night of the soul. And so um, just his humanity has has been a comfort to me in mm. those times. I love it. So, Rachel, uh, how it sounds like it's still good news for you with just picturing Christ on the cross. Is there any specific ways that you are really grasping the gospel right now in this super hard 2020 year? Mm. I think that the longer I'm a Christian, the more simple my faith becomes. So um, I think of the song, Jesus Loves Me, you know, um, so those those simple truths that I knew as a kid now are the most important truths in my life. Mm. I've got my degree in theology, but that's not what makes me love God. What makes me love God is just those, those core truths that Jesus loves me and the Bible tells me so. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, that's so good. And so, Rachel, you, you said that you grew up as a pastor's kid. That's right. And, and obviously back in the 90s, early aughts, there was this, this big movement of, of purity culture. And you, and you wrote the book, Talking Back to Purity Culture, and why I guess, why did you write that book? Well, I'm definitely not the person who's been the most impacted by it. There are other people who were more steeped in purity culture than I was. My parents didn't push it on me much, but I got it the same ways that a lot of us did through youth group and mainly through books that I read alone and internalized. Um, and so the reason that I chose to write the book is kind of multifaceted. I was going through a um, trial in my own life. My husband that I had met at Bible college and married and had been married about five years, um, walked away from the faith and divorced me. And I'd followed all the purity culture rules. And here I was at uh, age 29, divorced. And I quit my job and moved home, moved back in with my parents and my pastor father, the church I was raised in as a divorced woman. And so I had to kind of grapple with these failed purity culture promises that if you do the right things, you'll get a good marriage, great sex, children. And here I was divorced. Mm. So from a personal standpoint, that was one motivation. But I'd also been a high school English teacher, and I'd heard just some of the shame my students were dealing with when it came to sexuality. And I had friends who had been sexually abused, and the way that they were interpreting their worth through the lens of those purity messages just broke my heart. So when it came time to pick um, a dissertation topic, I decided to dig into these books of my youth and see if they really were uh, saying what the Bible said or if these were extra biblical messages as I had imagined. Hmm. And what did you find? Hmm. Many, many extra biblical messages. Hmm. So definitely some core biblical truths that I think we would all cling to to this day, but so many tactics and messages that went beyond scripture in order to motivate teenagers to pursue abstinence, but not necessarily for the right reasons. Mm. Mm -hmm. What I love about your book, which guys, did you know you can watch 
this conversation on Vimeo or YouTube. Just look in the show notes. But this book, I have it right here, this Talking Back to Purity Culture. What I love, Rachel, is your tone is strong but tender, and you really invite a conversation. Like, let's talk about this. And I've honestly been waiting to engage this conversation about are women responsible for men's issues with lust? Like I've wanted to write something about that or talk about it, but I am so, I'm still working on lament and forgiveness, to be honest with you, because I've been so hurt by this aspect of purity culture and not just purity culture. I think it's just sin. It's just sin nature in addition, maybe bread, like purity culture bread it. Um, But just that sense of, responsibility on us. And so um, let's just dive into it. I know, Matt, you've heard me say, I cannot overstate the pressure wives feel to make their men sexually Mm -hmm. happy. So first of all, are we responsible? And then can you help us understand when did this idea perhaps begin or get like cultivated further culturally? Right. Well, this, the simple um, answer would be, and it's not simple at all, but would be no, I don't believe women are responsible um, for male lust. But this idea has been around forever, and it started you know, the, in the Victorian era. But modern purity culture really picked it up um, from this guy named George Gilder, who's not a believer. He's an anti-feminist writer who uh, really influenced Dr. James Dobson. Mm-hmm. So what George Gilder taught was this idea of gender essentialism, that we're men and women are um, motivated by our base instincts and that men are basically animals, barbarians is what he called them. And women have to tame them. And without women, men just act like animals. And so James Dobson, who has influenced so many, um, and he was a big influence sort of in the pre-purity culture movement, um, he really grasped this idea and taught that that's why men and women should get married so Mm -hmm. that women can civilize their husbands. And then this bled, of course, into the sexual relationship between men and women where wives were responsible to make sure that their husband didn't stray. And um, so that's, that's where we get this idea, this pressure, um, which seemed like this nod of respect to women. Oh, women are so morally superior, which of course is not biblical, but this idea that women are so good, but it ends up, putting so much pressure on women. And if you break it down into these cases where a woman is sexually abused, she's going to be the one who's responsible ultimately with this thinking. And so it's wrong on so many levels. It's wrong on a biblical level and on a social level. And it's extremely dangerous Mm. when it comes to um, culpability with sexual abuse. Because then it would be, well, you didn't civilize this barbarian husband woman, right? Right. Or, you know, with single women, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. You wore the wrong thing. You let them on, um, you know, so it absolutely ends up being the woman's fault if she is sexually abused or if a man goes too far, she should have done something to prevent it. Yeah. Ooh, there's a lot. There. It's a lot. There's a lot there. Yep. <laughs> well, and, and I yeah, Laura, you're you're right that we have had many, many a conversation about kind of this topic and how that's affected you in particular. And, mm. and, and well, Rachel, when you're talking about this concept of men as animals that, mm. that was kind of brought about and I'm like, man, that is so undignifying and, and incorrect. Yeah. And, and there's so much because of that assumption that men are just going to be 
slave basically to their baser instincts that, that it it just, yeah, it, it hurts both sides, both men and women. And so I know that, that Lori, you got a lot of advice for how you were supposed to care for me. Um, and, and Rachel, you go into that in your book that there's been a lot of advice given to women on how to care for men with his kind of sexual issues, but, but very little going the other way. And so if you were, if you were to take a moment, like what are some of the other ways, what are some of the ways that men and women can care for one another and really talk about both of our, all of our issues with lust Mm -hmm. in, in a healthy way. And you're talking husbands and wives. Yeah. Yeah, I think so to neglect the sexuality of women is a mistake Mm. Um, or the fact that the Bible is actually very egalitarian when it comes to the sexual relationship between men and women. It says that a husband's body is his wife's and a wife's body is her husband's. And one thing I point out in my book is that this this can never mean selfish taking or demanding, because if we if we talk about sexuality within the whole of Scripture, as Christians, we're called to selflessness always. We're called to neighbor love, and that includes our spouse. And so this idea that once you're married, you can demand it, like, you owe me this. Um, we just don't, you don't see that in scripture, but you do hear it at times in the church. And so I think first we have to start with the fact that men and women are both sexual, and there's different sex drives depending on who you are, and there's different um, struggles and lust with lust. And in marriage, it's about loving your spouse as Christ loves us. And so you listen to them, you talk to them. And, you know, you, you two are such an excellent example of this. You guys really, you talk about this um, and show a better way where you're open. We don't make these generalized statements that all husbands and wives must do fill in the blank because mm. we're so different and we all have different histories and struggles. So I think it's about really listening to your spouse, checking in with them, realizing that you can't stop your spouse from sinning if they want to sin but you can sure love them. And um, that's all that you can control. Yeah. So there's a lot that could be said, but. Well, that's good. And I, I think just generally saying, just seeing each other as mm. equally valuable and equally broken and to really care mm. for each other. And it may begin with confessing we've believed, I've believed this lie that men are animals. And they are dogs. Mm -hmm. And so that for me, I'm still working there. And it's hard because culture still says it. Like not just purity culture, but the world's like, well, boys will be boys, et cetera. Exactly. So I think for me, a way to like unblock my own eyes is start with confession. Just God, I'm sorry I viewed men as this in this way. Please forgive me and help me to see them as you see them. Um, Mm -hmm. And then surrounding yourselves with some some brothers who are imperfect, but are really seeing themselves as fellow image bearers. And as you as a fellow image bearer, like Matt, he's a good dude. And Steve, it's awesome. (laughs) Okay. So this quote, I'm going to quote you. um, Oh, it's rough. This is a rough one. Okay, here we go. You say in these purity culture books, even when a husband has broken trust with his wife by sinning sexually, she is called to help her husband quit his sexual sin by increasing her availability to him sexually. Wives are called to be like a merciful vial of methadone for their husbands who are battling sexual lust, regardless of the chasm sexual sin creates or the feelings of betrayal they may be experiencing. How is this unhelpful, unhealthy advice, Rachel? And then Matt, even as a therapist, maybe could jump into. Okay, so there's this idea, um, 
yeah, that sex is the solution to lust. Right. And I think that there's a level of truth in if you're in a marriage and you're having sex, it might be less likely that you would struggle. But I would say in general, um, that's that's not true, because as a pastor's wife and a pastor's kid, I've heard so many stories where a couple maybe had a great sex life um, and one of them strayed or, you know, there's just so many situations um, that break that rule. Um, but ultimately, it's wrong because we are not you don't fight sin by demanding something from your spouse and saying so you don't fight sexual sin with sex. I think you fight sexual sin with self-control and love for the Lord and love for your neighbor. And that's not to say that having sex with your spouse isn't a good thing. It is a good thing. But we all know there are so many times in marriage where celibacy is is a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Your spouse is sick. Um, they're away. They're struggling um, with depression or maybe they're struggling with anger towards you for whatever reason there are periods of celibacy in marriage, in Christian marriage, and that's never talked about. Mm. We have to be able to trust one another. You have to be able to trust that your spouse will stay faithful to you, even if you're not giving them sex, because ultimately they're obeying God. Yes, yeah. they're being faithful to you, but God is our motivation. His glory, our love for him is our motivation. So this idea that if you just give your spouse more sex, that they will stop lusting. Uh, we really need to step back and realize that that's not uh, a, that's not the right narrative. It's mm -hmm. not helpful. Mm -hmm. Matt, how do you yeah. handle that? Yeah, is and I think just like you said, Rachel, sex is not the antidote. It, it can be, if done well, it can be a good model. It can be a piece of mm -hmm. of kind of someone's. I don't even want to say taming of a submission of their sinful lust in, in pursuit of what sex is supposed to be. Um, and I often will think in the, in the kind of correlation between sex within a marriage and, and pornography. And, mm -hmm. and one of the places that I've been going a lot with clients recently are kind of the mindsets that, that pornography, which is just steeped in lust cultivates mm -hmm. You know, and, and so it's this passive place. It's very consumerist. It's very just seeking novelty. There's no stability to it. Um, mm. It's often about personal control and, and it's often a fear-based response. And I like if you engage sex with your spouse and it's still in this like I'm doing it to be passive to something over here in my real life. I'm doing it as a consumer of my mm. spouse. Like it's still mm -hmm. lust. Mm, and and I right. think of, of a quote by Branson Parler, who we've had on the show, that lust is not something that Christian marriage just makes legal. It's something that has to be eradicated across the board. And so oh, to pursue sex is as something that is very active between a husband and wife, but that is also this productive, creative loving expression between the two of them, not just, uh, well, I'm scared that you're going to go shopping somewhere else. So I'm going to do this for you, but I'm going to begrudgingly right. hate you because of it. Or, yep. well, I need this because I'm a guy and because I have urges and I have no self-control like that. That is just not giving into right. sex that way is not actually taking care of the heart of the issue. Yeah, sure. There might be some physiological relief, but it doesn't do anything for the heart. Ooh. Right. Oh, I love what you're saying too, because you're pointing out that we, we aren't to treat our spouse as a sexual outlet because they are an image bearer of God. Yeah. Um, and so it's not that your spouse can't serve you and love you in that way, but to go to your spouse for what can I, 
what can I get from this person? Mm -hmm. um, that really ultimately won't create unity. And so I love that you point out that lust can actually exist within marriage, that there can be selfish taking rather than selfless giving in a, a married sex life. And so we need to we need to dig into that as a church. The, these are not conversations that I'm hearing in church. Mm. Oof. So this is something, okay, this concept of, of lust within marriage, this is something I actually see a lot, that, that when people come into my counseling office as they are wrestling sexually maybe with their spouse, this is something I often hear 1 Corinthians quoted, that while well, they're not supposed to withhold themselves from me type of idea. Right. Um, and so it's very easy, and this is stereotypically the men who are saying this about their wives. But going back, I guess before... Before we get to that point of marriage and this this kind of entitlement, if God has called them to marriage, that well, yeah, sorry, I'm I'm speaking from a story, but yes, not everyone is called to marriage. Um, but before, if if people who aren't called to marriage, or or if someone who maybe is going to get married yet they've they've lived this life where where they're told, okay, I am, a, I I require a release, I require this sexual outlet, I require. This otherwise I won't I won't be living up to my full self or whatever you want to call it. Like mm -hmm. when you get this picture of men as animals and women are just the object for men to satiate themselves. If that is the message right. or if that is part of the message that that has been maybe maybe overtly in some cases and more often maybe covertly to to a lot of young men and women, like what does this do? You know, you mentioned all of these these young women in your English class that that mm. are being so devastated by some of these messages. What have you seen happen in their life, and then what does it do to them if they are called to marriage? Oh man, there's so much there. Um, I think one of the main destructive things that it does is that men and women don't feel that they can have friendships within the church because. If you're single, then a woman is an obstacle to purity. And if you're married, she's an outlet. And so either way, you're dehumanizing women and you can't have um, true friendship or intimacy um, when you're viewing someone in that way, right? Mm -hmm. When you're dehumanizing them. And so for women, and, and they're taught this by the world, not just in purity culture, they're taught that their worth comes from their sexuality, wh whether it's... Um, their virginity when they're single or how much sex they give their husband once they're married. Either way, it's all about their sexuality. And women need to know that their worth, and men need to know this too, that their worth does not come solely from their sexuality. Um, we are image bearers of God and that includes sexuality, but includes so many other things. And so, um, oh gosh, I just feel like th there's so many answers to your question. Um, mm -hmm. The damage that it causes when we dehumanize one another in this way. Yep. Okay, so you have this experience as as a teacher. And and I know that one of the more common things that happens in schools now is this this exchange of pictures that happens with with young kids where they're ex mm -hmm. where they're expected to mm -hmm. to be giving out pictures of themselves nude pictures and, and performing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And, and how, how do you see, do you see that as a, as a 
as a result of, I guess, the purity culture that we've, we've kind of grown up in? Or, or is it in some ways a reaction against it? That's an interesting question. I, I, so I always worked in Christian schools, but those things were still happening, mm-hmm. um, sadly. And so it's an interesting question that purity culture might actually push um, young men and women to actually doing those sexual things. But I think that to an extent it does, because first of all, if virginity is the only standard for purity, then you can do everything else, right? And so that's that's a problem that you hear people talking about that they would, you know, we're sinful, so we'll work around the rule. The, you know, the rule that we're given, we'll figure out, you can sign the purity pledge and say you won't kiss until marriage, and then you can do whatever else you want. Um, and so I, I think to an extent that happened, but when women are constantly taught that um, their sexuality is dangerous, or that it's what you do to get a spouse, then yeah, I think that that you will see young Christian women um, falling into sending those nude pics in order to gain favor, because they realize that their sexuality is like a currency. Mm -hmm. And so while their Christian leaders are trying to tell them to save that currency, it's being called currency, (laughs) which is such an unbiblical thing. And so they're going to use it that way. Right. I mean, if we, if we use unbiblical strategies to help kids do the right thing, it's, it's not going to go well. (laughs) So good. (laughs) To say the least. Okay, this question, this is one that is so hard for me, and I'm sorry it was not on the outline that I gave you, but I'm asking the Lord, and I'm like, okay, I think we're supposed to ask this. So when I go for a run or go on travel, if I'm by myself or something, I plan on getting objectified. I plan on people, on men often in particular, looking at me in certain ways and it, it's not because I'm so amazing and it's not because I'm wearing certain things, you know, as right. the things go, it's just right. hard, cold facts. So I yeah. am just curious, how do you in real life, when you are objectified, uh, how do you keep your mind and heart from going down to old paths that are like all men are animals, they're dogs. They're mm-hmm. just r- going down the script that, I see it. I experience it right now. What do you do? Gosh, it's hard. It is really easy to fall into, you know, men have their locker room talk and women have their, the way they trash talk men, right? Yeah. Yeah. All men are animals. Um, Yeah. I think one way that I work on that is by not talking that way about my spouse and other men with other Christian women, because Christian women do it too. They so do. Oh, they'll just trash their husbands Mm -hmm. and all men. They'll they'll group all men into a specific category. So we can. Yeah. So I think it's controlling my language around others, but yeah, when, if I'm taking a walk and someone honks or yells um, it's, it's hard not to, um, make that generalization about all men. And so I think I just returned to the fact that we were created in God's image and the fall has broken all of us. Yeah. And so, yeah, men are going to lust. Women are going to lust. We're going to dehumanize one another, but it doesn't mean we're not human. Cause we're dehumanizing them back when we talk crap about them. It's <laughs> true. It's you so, know. that's so true. They're dehumanizing us or dehumanizing them. And Satan's like, yeah. I don't care who's doing what I win. Yeah. If I can throw in two things, cause again, I'm just trying to ask the Lord, cause this has been in my heart and I have not sensed a green light from him to say it in any other platform except right now. So God help me. But guys, I've been working on this for years, for years and years, Matt knows mm-hmm. since before we were married, um, when anything like this would happen, 
in the olden days, I used to just flip them off. <laughs> and mm-hmm. at the, then the next phase was me just rage. I would come home like spitfire mad and I'm just, mm-hmm. I would be so struggling, you guys. And so I have done many rounds of lament of men in general. And then, um, and God help me to forgive, show me what real masculinity is too. But now after I've done those big forgiveness rounds, when that happens, it happened yesterday. I have, I go in my heart and mind and I say, you know what? They're looking at, he's saying these things and I, I have to go, he's looking at me, but he's looking for Jesus. He's actually, it's a heart thing he's looking for. He thinks he's going to find it in whatever he's looking at me, but he's just actually, it's revealing his own brokenness. And then two, Matt helped me with this. So thank you, Matt, is when people, so guys, you know, when people, whatever their gender objectify you, it's no longer you. You would never do those things they're envisioning. And so sometimes I can feel so like slimy, like I'm like, ah, they're picturing, I don't know what they're picturing, ew. But he, Matt helped me to just say, Lori, you can detach it from yourself because you would never do even what they're saying or thinking. And so I don't, those are just two things. And I love what you said too, just this like seeing each other's image bearers and watching our language. And just for me to just, instead of go to hatred, go to, they're looking for Jesus. They're staring at me and they're looking for Jesus. And I would never do that. So <laughs> bye-bye. Well, that's such, a, that's such a compassionate lens too, that they're looking for, I love that. They're looking for Jesus. And I, I would add too, we have to be so careful that we don't look at someone who is objectifying us and then assume that, the Christians we know can't have self-control. So I yeah. think what, what would happen to me is I'd see men behave that way. And then I would say, oh man, all the men in my church are also probably, you know, looking at me the same way. That's good. They're hiding it. No, they don't have to. That self-control is possible through the Holy Spirit. And yes. we have to keep reminding one another of that, that we are new creations in Christ. So mm-hmm. we're not slaves to sin. If you're If you're in Christ, you're not a slave to sin. So this idea that, all men or all women are, like we said earlier, are just, you know, slaves to their impulses. That's not true. And so when we see people act out of that enslavement, yes. um, we shouldn't apply that to everyone we know. Yep. That's so good and really important. But it's hard. I mean, I, I hear you. Yeah, I think that's a really tough thing. Yeah, I, I feel like this was something that when I came out with my pornography addiction back in 2015 that that I felt a lot of of kind of all of a sudden being put into that animal category who was hard with a lot of well with Lori in particular yes and and we had to work through that but um but even even from other people who who were not you know in our marriage and who were just looking at me like oh I am now all of a sudden this awful awful human being and I felt that Mm -hmm. way um, mm-hmm. you felt that way. I yourself. felt that way about yeah. myself. I didn't need anyone telling me that that's, <laughs> right. that's what kept me hidden right. for so long, you know, but when it, it, it's easy to look and to see kind of these obvious places where, you know, things like pornography, things like, you know, the, the rape and the, the, the stuff that happens in our culture and just the awful things that happen. But when we look at just this, this idea of, okay, you, seeing everyone as an image bearer, as someone who is created as a child of God, who is supposed mm. to just be given this dignity, this, um, this, this honor, just based on being created that. Um, yeah. 
it's easy to put men in this category as animals. And it's easy to kind of, as you guys went into, it's easy to look at women as the stereotype, catty, man-bashing people. You know, mm-hmm. but, but are we not all broken? And, and, right. I, and I mean that, are, are, not, are women also broken sexually? And are men also broken emotionally? I don't even know how to categorize that. Yeah. But are we not also catty? Right. I mean, and I think if we believe Jesus' words... In the Sermon on the Mount, that even looking at someone with lust is adultery, then we have to say that we are all sexual sinners. Mm-hmm. I, I had someone ask me that recently. They said, I'm a virgin, so why why am, would you call me a sexual sinner? But because sexual sin is not just an act, one physical act. Um, it's uh, taking anything, even if it's taking it in your mind um, mm-hmm. that's not yours. And so um, I think that you know, we all have different proclivities and and struggles, but I would say that all of us are sexually broken because of the fall. Mm -hmm. And so we've all had different experiences. um, But yeah, the, the good virgin pastor's kid um, is still has sexual sin in their heart that they need to seek forgiveness for. And so many of the people I interviewed said that they're, they wore their virginity as um, a badge of pride and that that was really damaging to their spiritual health because they, they took all this pride in their virginity, but inside they were struggling with sexual sin, whether it was pornography or lust in their heart or whatever it was. Um, but on the outside, they looked like a good Pharisee. Mm. So, And isn't that the word? Good little mm-hmm. Pharisee. Yep. <laughs> so, Rachel, to someone who's listening right now and is, I don't know, maybe this conversation stirred up uh, mm. for them either as a man feeling like a dog, like Matt just mentioned, and just like, no, I am this person. Like that's how they're seeing themselves. Or as a woman feeling like they are this, but maybe instead of pointing the finger square at their own chest or at them, where can they take that finger pointing? And and what words would you give to them right now? Mm. I think you have to go back to the, the cross. The first question you asked me was my testimony and Jesus on the cross, that's the cost of forgiveness. And forgiveness is available because of that. And so there is no sin too great that he can't forgive. And more than that, our purity finds its source in Christ's finished work. So mm-hmm. it really can't be changed. Yes, we can sin. We can dishonor the Lord. And then we get back up and try again the next day because our forgiveness is not based on our merit or how good we are at following God. Thank goodness. It's based on the fact that Christ already won our forgiveness for us. And so our dignity cannot be changed and our purity cannot be changed if we are in Christ. Mm. Love it. Love it. Amen. Man, thank you so much, Rachel. Guys, go check out her new book. Talking back to purity, culture, rediscovering faithful Christian sexuality. I really appreciate you guys. You're doing good work. It was an honor to be here. Thanks, Rachel. Back at you. Thank you. And guys, oh man, next week is Christmas. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for Jesus. I'm so thankful in that it's Christmas. And so let's go lighter with the question of the week as we usually do, but specifically Christmas light, uh, talking about childhood toys. What's a favorite one? That when you see it or think of it now, you're like, um, maybe I could play with it again. I literally only asked this question because I had this happen to me. 
in one of my favorite stores, which is Kohl's. <laughs> I'll tell you about it next week. Which toy, not about Kohl's, about which toy I picked up and freaked out about. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm the most active on Instagram, to be honest with you, but I often post this question on Facebook. So find me there and answer the question of the week, specifically the Hole in My Heart podcast Facebook group. That's where we ask these the most frequently. Guys, thanks again to Rachel Joy Welcher. She is a gem. And for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week.